This brand new stadium is a jewel in Manaus crown, the capital of Amazonas in Brazil. With its basket shape and transparent roof, the 6,000-ton steel giant is set to host four games for the World Cup. It seats 44,000. The bleachers are painted in the colors of local fruit. For the project's designers, the cup will be the beginning to a glittering future. A familiar fixture on Rio de Janeiro's skyline, steeped in football history. Now Maracanã Stadium's field turned brown with neglect. Windows have been smashed, televisions stolen. The stands faded with random holes where there should be seats. Take a look at this. This is the new South China Mall. When it opened more than five years ago, it was promoted as the world's largest shopping mall. But look at it today. The escalators are covered with sheets, the elevators aren't even working, and it is virtually deserted. A ghost mall, some people call it. Welcome to the Global Inquirer, where we take a look at intriguing case studies that help examine how global trends are impacting real lives. I'm your host, Nico Marsage, and today I'm joined by Dominic Giovaniello, a Middle Eastern Studies and Arabic major, and Balthazar Marin, a Perspective Politics major. So today our topic is white elephant projects, and broadly speaking, development policy. You heard a lot about these white elephant projects at the outset of our podcast, and, and in essence, white elephant projects are any sort of infrastructure or development project that appears to reap huge, huge economic benefits and turns out to be a disaster, a huge economic and political waste. Today, our case study is going to take us into Egypt, where a failed development project in the Toshka Valley has really drained a lot of Egypt's resources. Dom, can you walk us through this case study in a little bit more detail? Yeah, of course. First of all, though, I think it's important to understand what Egypt's situation is like. 96% of Egypt's population lives in 4% of Egypt's land. 95% of the country is desert. And Cairo is actually the fastest growing city in the world. So it's important to keep all of that in mind when trying to understand Egypt's development policies for the last several decades. In 1997, the Mubarak regime announced a plan to reclaim several hundred thousand acres of desert land in uh, Toshka Valley, which is located just above the southern border with Sudan, very close to, the, to Lake Nasser, which is an artificial lake that was created by the damming of the Nile River in the 1960s. And the promise of this project was to reclaim several hundred thousand acres and to turn it into arable land, which would feed Egypt in the decades and century to come. Additionally, the government estimated that it would create hundreds of thousands of jobs every year and would eventually house 20% of the country's population. They estimated that it would cost about $87 billion over 20 years. But at the time, people were very excited. It was considered the mega project defining the Mubarak era the same way that uh, the Aswan Dam defined uh, Nasser's regime. Fast forward to 2012, and only 10% of the planned uh, development was actually irrigated. Despite the fact that the government had spent billions of dollars, had built the world's largest pumping station, had attracted lots of investment from foreign companies, especially Saudi and Emirati companies. 
given all that's been said, why did the project fail then? Well, part of it had to do with mismanagement. The government failed to conduct environmental feasibility studies, and as a result, they failed to take into account the fact that saline levels in the soil of Toshkar were very high and non-conducive to, to farming. So even in areas that were irrigated, uh, because of the low soil quality, there was a failure to produce agricultural goods. Another major factor is that the government failed to take into account that people just don't want to live in the desert. It's not feasible to create a community in one of the most inhospitable regions of uh, the Egyptian countryside and then expect that millions of Egyptians would want to be torn away from their communities, their lifestyles, and relocate to an area where basic infrastructure and other government facilities just haven't been developed. Let me just jump in here. I think that is perfectly symbolic of the culture that surrounds how we think about development. Over the past five decades, we have wasted $2.3 trillion uh, in these lofty development projects, which really overlook the wants and, more importantly, the needs of the people. But what I would say is, you know, obviously it's important to take into account the cultural aspects of a country, but if you look at the way in which Israel has sort of reclaimed their desert and built up development projects around a country with few natural resources and a similar environment to Egypt, why couldn't then Egypt just mirror some of their efforts in development projects? That's a good point, Nico, but Israel and Egypt are very different countries. Egypt has a much larger population and a much poorer population, and it's a much larger country in general. Secondly, Egypt has had some success with desert reclamation. However, what really differentiates the New Valley Project in Toshka is the scale. As we discussed earlier, it's a multi-billion dollar project. Uh, which promises to, to deliver uh, hundreds of thousands of jobs and tremendous agricultural output. And the fact that it isn't grounded in realistic expectations, nor has it been properly conducted. Right, and this is the main problem with developmental policy. You have one success story, and these success stories are few and far between. And you have these so-called developmental experts come in and try and replicate that in different places, but they fail to take into account the cultures and the context that, in which they exist. And that is the most important thing when considering developmental policy. It is how the country and how the populace is going to take to these projects. So when you're looking at development projects from a case-by-case -case basis, there's really no policy that could fit a broad region, group of countries, or, or even or area. Exactly. Since the beginning of developmental policy, we have tried to apply this one-size-fits-all idea, but in reality, it's just never going to work. In the 40s and 50s, we attacked GDP. We thought if we could boost GDP, the benefits would somehow trickle down to the poor. In the 50s, it was basic needs approach. We would simply just give money to the poor, feed them for as long as we could, and hopefully they would break out of the poverty cycle. From the 60s and 70s, it was foreign direct investment. This had its own disastrous consequences in the form of structural adjustment loans, which has really reigned supreme from then now until the modern day. It is a never-ending cycle of failed developmental policy, and at the crux of each of these issues are these so-called experts who go into countries oblivious of contextual 
and cultural norms and try and force their idea of development onto these countries. And just bringing this back to Egypt, in the case of the Toshka River Valley and other failed desert reclamation projects, part of the problem is that the Egyptian government has been captivated, you could say obsessed, by the idea of desert reclamation for too long and has overlooked simpler, less sexy fixes, such as improving the quality of Egypt's agricultural storage. Something like 20% of Egypt's grain product goes to waste every year because the silos that they store it in are leaky or infested with rodents and bugs. Another problem is that Egypt exports $2 billion worth of agricultural goods every year, but it also imports 50% of its food. So there clearly is a problem of distribution and efficiency. These are not approaches that you could, like addressing these issues is not something that you can put on a campaign poster and uses an example of your country's prowess and ambitious developmental pushes. But it could potentially be an effective way to actually address the issues that face average Egyptians, who by some estimates spend 40% of their income every year on food. And that kind of brings us into the next realm of development policy where you have have two sides, sort of the top-down and the bottom-up approach, where Dom, it sounds like you're advocating for a more bottom-up approach, whereas historically in Egypt, it might be seen as more top-down. What are the merits to either case? What you're referring to here is known as the planners versus searchers idea. The planners are those who view development as a technical problem. They think it can be solved by these sweeping projects, a centrally controlled management team, and lots and lots of money. Now, conversely, you have the searchers, and they believe that these problems are just too nuanced and complicated to impose a simple fix without direct involvement from those who it's meant to affect. Now, the main difference between these two methods is that searchers rely on market feedback mechanisms. This allows the development project to evolve as new factors come into play. This term was coined by author and developmental theorist William Easterly. You'll hear a little bit more about him and some of his theories in our interview with Professor Fatah. Let's take a listen. Wait, so then why would why do developing countries pursue these white elephant projects? Well, that depends. Some of it is sheer vanity of the leaders. Now, there are other projects that were supposed to be geared toward economic development and became catastrophes. I mean, there's the history of a, of a huge pipeline between Chad and Cameroon, and they, it was about $4 billion. It was uh, you know, subsidized by the World Bank. And the idea was that the two countries would use the benefit of the electricity produced by, by, the, by the pipeline, and the money produced by that, would uh, go to developmental projects. But no. I mean, the, the, the leader, uh, the then leader of Chad decided that he would put the money into military hardware to build his army. So that was a catastrophe. I mean, there is a case in Haiti, the so-called Haitian pig story. That was in the early 1980s. And Haitian peasants had what they called Haitian pig. You know, that pig could survive anything. I mean, he didn't need much food. They didn't need clean water. It would just go, you know, in the countryside, eat, and it was a source of revenues for peasants. Uh, and in, when, they needed, when they really needed money, they would sell the pig. 
Well, the USAID came to Haiti and said, well, the pigs are sick. And there's going to be, you know, uh, a disease that is going to kill the whole population and is going to spread throughout, you know, the Caribbean and eventually get to the other So what are we going to do? We're going to eradicate the population. They killed, they killed all of the Haitian pigs. And they introduced the nice, cute Iowa pig. The problem with the Iowa pig is that it needs clean water, it needs proper food, and the cost, uh, uh, you know, to just keep the Iowa pig alive is $90 a month. Now, that's the gross national per capita of the uh, uh, yearly of a Haitian fellow, of a Haitian pig. So there's no way. So they introduced those pigs, they all died. And it was stopped. So the whole population of the, uh, the pig population was destroyed. The countryside was devastated. And then what happened afterwards? A few years back, well, let's reintroduce the Haitian pig or something like that. So the U.S. <laughs> Those are the kinds of crazy things that, that happened. You know, and there was no malice. It's just that they didn't know what the hell they were doing. So you, you have those problems, you know, uh, in the 60s, for instance, during the Cold War, the Soviet Union sent to Guinea, in West Africa, snowplows. What the hell are you going to do? With I mean, I mean, and there are pictures of those snowplows, you know, in the sun, and after a year, they were all completely wasted. And, and it sounds like it's like a huge waste of resources where they could be using, you know, the money that they bought the snowplows with to fund something else. Yeah, like, what, sometimes what? it's a gift, too. Okay. So you don't even need to pay. But you, you don't, you know, the donors don't even re realize what they are doing. They're just giving stuff that is completely useless. So where's the accountability coming to all of this? Um, more particularly with... Accountability, wow. I mean, you, you can... There, there are certain... Uh, uh, Organizations that are in the business of showing you all of the crazy things that are going. Uh, so, and, and governments like those projects because it gives them the idea that they have arrived. And then there's a lot of corruption. I mean, when you're when you're talking about a billion dollars, you can imagine what happens with that billion dollars before it is fully dispersed. I mean, part of it is going to go to the key leaders of those countries. So, uh, and the World Bank likes big projects too. I mean, there are a lot of critical analysis of the World Bank that the projects don't make much sense. And nation states have the idea, and that's universal, that they need big projects so they can show that they are really modern and that they've mastered nature. So there's that kind of mentality everywhere. So when the IMF and the World Bank subsidizes these these projects, they don't have like, a board of directors. Oh, they are. They are, they are you, got, you supposedly have all of that, but that doesn't mean that. Uh, <laughs> and their donors don't, in the end, really care what. Well, you care, but what do you do? I mean, aid and assistance is highly politicized. You know, there are certain countries that get more than others because they're allies of the major powers, and that was very much the case in the Cold War. Uh, I mean, you have this story, for instance, in the Cold War of uh, Mobutu Sese Seko, who was the leader of Zaire. It was called Zaire, then it's the Congo now. But everyone knew that he was utterly corrupt. I mean, it, it was, 
the World Bank had reports showing, you know, he had stolen billions, literally billions of dollars. You know, they would send missions and then they would say, you have to clean up your act. And then because he was supported by the French, by the Americans, by the Belgians, so close your eyes and let the guy stay in power. The money would be dispersed everywhere so it would keep things manageable from a political perspective. So you have that. Now there is an attempt to clean it up. But the World Bank itself is not immune from scandal, as you know. You know, you know the scandal of the French guy, Dominique Strauss. Mm-hmm. You know, Strauss. Yeah. You know, accused. I mean, he, he was really accused of raping people, of stealing money. Then they put another guy who was, you know, appointing his girlfriends to big positions. I mean, this is not as if the World Bank is the most uh, honest of all organizations. So you, you have a problem of accountability that reaches not only the third world countries, but the World Bank itself. So, But when the IMF and World Bank fund these projects, how is there such a high level of cultural incompetence in, in implementing them? <laughs> That's a good question. Some of those projects, you have to wonder really how you could imagine a project of that kind, like killing the pigs in Haiti. Why in the hell would you do that? When you know that it's a very poor country, peasants don't have more than $120 a year on a per capita basis, and you're bringing a pig that needs $90 a month to survive. I mean, this is gross incompetence, and many of, of, of the problems you know, come from the fact that many of the uh, so-called experts have no clue about the country. I mean, for instance, I'll give you an example. If you read Jeffrey Sachs, who's a guy who's head of the Millennium Project, he was part of that. Well, when he started, he was a young genius, supposedly. He went to Harvard, got his PhD in econ at the age of 25, then he's catapulted to the position in uh, Bolivia this day guy in charge of the economy of Bolivia. He has no clue about Bolivia, and he writes about it. I didn't know that Bolivia was a country that was that had no ports. He didn't know when the hell it was, essentially. So he goes there and he generates hell. So, so there's the arrogance of many experts. Mm-hmm. You know, if you read, for instance, Easterly. I mean, there are so many stories. Of, you know, I mean, in his most recent book, he talks about an imaginary village in the United States that was taken over uh, by the World Bank and the peasants were pushed aside. And he said, obviously, that didn't happen in the United States, but it happened in Africa. This is a real story. So go and figure. But this is not uniquely third worldish. If you read the news, uh, most recent news, go to the Guardian or the Independent in England, they are building a nuclear plant, the Hinkley nuclear plant. It's going to cost about 22 billion pounds. That's a lot of money. The problem is that technology doesn't work very well, that the cost of electricity is going to be, from that nuclear plant, double the current price. And the alternative sources of energy that are less costly and cheaper in terms of selling it, that they ignore, 22 billion pounds. 
it's two years behind the projected date of Venetian. They say that it will end in 2020, but the likelihood that because of the technological problems, it would be late 2020s. So you're talking about a 22 billion pound investment in nuclear energy, and they still don't know what to do with the nuclear waste. Yeah, so I mean, is this cultural incompetence inevitable? Like, is it inevitable that if you try to implement one of these development projects, it will breed corruption or, you know, but generally... Not all projects breed corruption, right? but, but why, those why white elephants, that's exactly what they are. They are powerful interests that, that, that benefit from that. Mm -hmm. I mean, a 20 billion uh, pound investment, that's considerable. I mean, it is huge. You can imagine that there are plenty of, you know, engineering firms still in that they wanted, even though it may not serve the purposes uh, uh, of the general public, but it does serve their particular purposes. So, making those things accountable, I don't know, because even in England, you know, a lot of people are writing about it. That is crazy. This should not be. This shouldn't be happening. They still do it. So it's difficult to fight such powerful economic interests when they decide we are going to do that. Or government interests, you know, construction of huge dams that displace people. I mean, there's one that was built in China, I forget the name. I mean, a huge thing that displaced something like 2 million peasants. The Three Gorges Dam? I think that's the one. Yeah. You know, maybe it will work, but maybe it's going to be a huge catastrophe. So, why do countries continue to pursue these types of development projects? Is it like because of vanity? I think it's vanity. They're also, I mean, a powerful economic interest. That why not? I mean, if it's subsidized, you build it, and the hell afterwards. What steps can be taken to discourage white elephant projects in the future? Or to incentivize other more... Yeah, well, you would projects. need, you know, both some sort of uh, more transparent process and the involvement of people both in the industrialized countries and in the third world countries saying no to that. Uh, but that doesn't mean that you're going to stop them. Uh, there, are, there are a few, you know, organizations that want transparency and that point out the, the craziness of those projects. But... Do they have the power to stop the IMF, the World Bank, or the Chinese, or the Americans, or the French from doing what they want to do? It's, 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 it's not clear. So going back to like modern development theory, we have a lot of, I won't say exactly failed, but ill-conceived theories. Like you said, structural adjustment loans, focus on GDP growth, basic needs approach. Is there a particular theory that you advocate for that you think is the well, it's best a direction? Yeah, it's a complicated business because if you buy the theory that everyone has to be quote-unquote developed, well, we would all be dead. So that There's no way that everyone can consume like a Swedish fellow on a universal basis. It's just impossible. We don't have the... You know, there are limits ecological limits to that, the pollution that there would be, everyone, for instance, capable of taking an airplane. And go. Just think about that, or consuming everyone as a car, everyone as a big house with air condition. It's unsustainable. So the very paradigm that we use is 
actually utopian in the best sense of the word, or very cynical, because we know it can't be. So you would need, if you want a, a, a generalized area of development for everyone, then you would need to change everything. I mean, it's not, and the theories, whether you're left or right, don't really take into account of that, because the idea is we need to have higher per capita income everywhere. And the goal is to catch up if you're in the third world with the, so that, that vision is, first, it, it's unrealistic. It's not going to happen. And if it were to happen, then we would all be dead. So it's not going to happen. So you need to revise the things. And I don't know how you do that. You need probably to curb the appetite of people like us and move other people at a different level. Uh, but do we all need to have the kind of lifestyle that we have here? And that drastically, like, challenges the concept of modernity it, it challenges everything it challenges all it existing most existing theories it challenges the whole idea that we are on a linear path to some great outcome challenges the idea that we are all in this together because we are not even if we think we are but we are not clearly there's a lot of bad going on in the world and we're not headed in the best direction according to you and happen to agree. Is there anything that gives you hope or anything that you see in maybe the new generation or new policy that, that could create this paradigm shift? Or I think people are starting to think about it. Now, whether it's going to happen, I don't know, because the most powerful interests are not moving in that direction. So maybe what, I mean, it's unfortunate to say, maybe you need a real crisis that will provoke a shock and that shock will lead to more sensible policies. Uh, but I think more people are aware that there is a problem now, whether they constitute a critical mass that can change the existing path, I don't know. That's your generation, my generation messed up completely. So, uh, you know, but your generation is going to be facing huge problems locally, nationally, internationally. And you may not have the same standard of living that we enjoy. On the other hand, you know, we here are privileged compared to the vast majority of the population, even when we are not doing that well. <laughs> I think uh, we can end on that note. That's not a very optimistic note. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's okay though. Uh, there, there's, there's, there's not an, too much optimism yeah. in these white elephant projects. Yeah. So, uh, there's an Italian intellectual by the name of Gramsci who used to say, uh, "Optimism of the will and pessimism of the intellect." So when you analyze things, it's kind of depressing. But hopefully, you know, human beings have the capacity to change things, and we do. We, we surprise ourselves in some instances that we do think that we think we could do. Uh, but those are rare moments of electrifying moments. So hopefully that's where usually we should be going. Hopefully, yeah. <laughs>《2015, Egypt's President Sisi inaugurated a project to reclaim yet another 1.5 million acres of land in Egypt's desert. So on that note, we'll end the episode. Thanks for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed listening to the unique perspective of White Elephant Projects and development policy, broadly speaking. 
I want to thank Professor Patan and, of course, Dominic and Balthazar for coming on and doing this great research. I hope you tune in next week as we take a look at Poland's constitutional crisis. We'll see you next time.